If you're curious to engage with a lot of the topics we explore on the podcast in more creative and embodied ways, we welcome you to join us in Alchemize, our 10-week audio-based program of daily imagination practices intended to disrupt status quo ways of thinking, sensing, relating, and being. To be honest, without any grant support for our show right now, and we did just get turned down by several mainstream environmentalism philanthropies, this program and our Patreon are our primary means of supporting our labor for these free podcasts right now. We really want to remain untethered to corporate interests, and every small contribution to our Patreon or enrollment in our program Alchemize helps to ensure that we can continue producing these vital conversations that feature voices and perspectives often sidelined from mainstream media. So if you value our work and want to dive deeper with us, join us in Alchemize today at greendreamer.com slash alchemize and join our Patreon starting at just $3 at patreon.com slash greendreamer. Thank you so, so much for however you were able to support our work during these critical times. We are so deeply grateful. Hey, I just wanted to first say, if you're somewhere where you have to practice social distancing due to the coronavirus pandemic, and if your life, if your routines have been put on hold, you're not alone. I'm on lockdown myself, so I'm thinking of you and your loved ones. I really hope you're taking good care of yourselves and that it's not bringing about too much added stress to your life. If anything, we now have over 220 episodes here on Green Dreamer, a lot of which are really worth re-listening to if you're a champ and have listened to every single one. So yeah, my only hopes are that the show can be here as a part of what can support you to get through this difficult time and this time of uncertainty. And again, I'll just mention quickly, if you're finding our independent podcast valuable and are in a position to be able to chip in just $2 per month to support this work to continue, you can head to greendreamer.com support to learn more. In indigenous cultures, we do not own land. We belong to the land. Hence the difference in perception and the relationship to the land. There's no commodification. Because of this reciprocity with the land, as indigenous peoples, we have been able to retain the biological diversity. That was Galina Angarova, a longtime advocate for indigenous peoples groups and the executive director of Cultural Survival, which is a nonprofit organization that fights for indigenous peoples' rights and supports indigenous communities' self-determination, cultures, and political resilience. I think this is one of the most important conversations I've had because it really gets to the heart of our social and ecological injustices and helps us to understand that intersection through the lens of an indigenous woman. We're going to go over things like how the diversity of cultures and languages impact biodiversity, what the sacred feminine is, and what it means that we need to rebalance the feminine and the masculine for a more just and harmonious world, and more. Green Dreamer, if you're ready, take a deep breath and let's dive in. Hey, it's Kamea Shane, and this is Green Dreamer, a podcast exploring our paths to ecological balance, intersectional sustainability, and true abundance and wellness for all. If you haven't already, make sure to hit subscribe, and together, let's learn what it takes to thrive in every sense of the word.
from the start, I just wanted to introduce myself. My name is Galina Angarova. I come from the Ejerit nation of the Buryat people, which is the largest indigenous group that lives on both sides of Lake Baikal, which is the largest freshwater lake in the world, containing 20% of freshwater. I grew up in a community which is about 60 kilometers west of the lake and uh, Lake Baikal and the land which I grow, uh, which I grew in uh, was probably my first love. I felt this really important spiritual connection to this large body of water, to the land, to the rivers. And that's how I think I started my dedication to protecting the environment and the indigenous peoples. In a recent interview, you've said that growing up in Russia, it was hard to really understand my own situation and the situation of my people. It took leaving and living far away to understand the degree of both external and internalized oppression, colonization, and paralysis that my people and other indigenous peoples in Russia currently face. End quote. What happened that led you to this awakening and what motivated you to become an indigenous rights activist? That's right. It actually did take me leaving and living far away from my homeland to understand who I was. I'm an indigenous person. I'm an indigenous rights activist. So at the age of 24, I came to the United States on a scholarship to the University of New Mexico. And of all places on earth, I ended up in the land of enchantment. That's how it's called. And this is where, for the first time in my life, I, I encountered the Native American culture and made friends with Native Americans. It was a mind-blowing experience for me because I learned that we're very similar in our ways. We have our own culture. We have our own language. We have belief systems that are very similar, the way we relate to each other and the way we relate to Mother Earth, first and foremost. I also learned how similar challenges were and how people were denied of their rights to their own land. When I went to school to New Mexico, I learned about this famous Petroglyph National Monument, which is um, right on the outskirts of the city of Albuquerque. And it's a sacred site for local Pueblo Indians, and it has about 21,000 carvings, maybe dating back several thousands of years ago. I don't remember exactly how many thousands, but they're very pretty ancient. And after years of resistance and prayers, the city of Albuquerque actually decided to build the four-lane highway through the sacred site. And it broke the spiritual integrity of the sacred site. And that's how I learned that actually, we're in, as indigenous peoples, we're facing the same struggles in the same infringement on our rights and specifically the right to land rights, uh, land territories and resources. Mm. Mm -hmm. Do you think at the root of that, it's really about the fundamental differences that many indigenous peoples look at wealth because the, the mainstream culture seems to look at wealth in very monetary terms, right? But in a lot of indigenous communities, as I've come to learn, Wealth means so much more. It's oh, yeah. your relationship to other people, to your ancestral lands, a sense of spirituality in all of this, just valuing all life within your community. Mm -hmm. How do you see, I guess, that difference playing out as a commonality? 
There's definitely a big difference between how we view wealth. And you rightfully mentioned it's reflected in our relationships, the energy that we bring into our relationships. That energy is usually manifested in many things, like including money, but it's not the only thing that's manifested. It's manifested in our generations that come after us. It's manifested in our rivers, in our resources, and I wouldn't even call them resources. It's it's everything that surrounds us. And I also wanted to really stress on the fact that there is a huge difference in the way we view our land. You know, in the modern culture, in the Western culture, land is property. In indigenous cultures, we do not own land. We belong to the land. Mm. Yeah. And hence the difference in perception and the relationship to the land. There's no commodification. Because of this reciprocity with the land, we are able, as indigenous peoples, we were able, have been able to retain the biological diversity. And maybe also because your senses of wealth is so encompassing mm-hmm. and comprehensive, it takes into account all things that should matter to us as humans. We know that in in much of the so-called developed world, suicide rates are on the rise, mental illness is on the rise. There's a loneliness epidemic where I believe 50 to 70 percent of people in the United States mm-hmm. say that they feel lonely. So I guess all of these things may be the result of us simplifying the idea of wealth into Mm -hmm. just money, where we Mm -hmm. strip away all other sorts of meaning and connection and things that matter to us as human beings. Absolutely. I agree with you. Again, simplification of wealth has actually led to believing that money is the only solution, but solutions are multiple to really holding our space on on this planet and being in relationship within, being in equilibrium and having the multitude of relationships. That's why when we pray, we we pray for all of our connections and relations in the world, not only with human beings, but with the natural world. To us, we do not objectify nature, animals, stones, birds, rivers, are our participants in this life and our indirect relationship with us. Something that indigenous peoples around the world are disproportionately affected by today is climate change. And mm-hmm. given that there's so much diversity in culture, language, lifeways, and home bioregions among indigenous peoples in different parts of the world, can you give us some examples of how climate change has disrupted your livelihoods, but maybe in different ways? That's a great question. And indigenous peoples are on the forefront in combating climate change. So what does it mean for us as indigenous peoples? Because of the close connection to the land, we are impacted the most. Uh, for example, in the Arctic, communities are suffering from the receding sea ice, right? Changing weather, increased storms, changing animal behavior. They're moving to other areas, to colder areas, and people have no access to their subsistence anymore. In the Himalayas, for example, communities depend on seasonal flow of water from the glaciers, and the unprecedented melting is resulting in more water in the short term and less water in the long run. 
my communities in Siberia and the communities in Amazon have suffered unprecedented fires, which are also a result of the climate change. And communities in the Philippines are being constantly hit by typhoons, which are devastating the entire villages on the coast. At the same time, indigenous peoples offer solutions to climate change. And maybe I could talk about what solutions we offer. Yeah, I do want to make a comment before we Mm -hmm, go into mm -hmm. solutions. I don't Mm -hmm. want to overgeneralize, but in a way, do you feel that indigenous, tribal, native and First Nations peoples are disproportionately more affected by climate change because, of course, sometimes because of the economic disparity, but also in many cases, these communities just live more closely with your ancestral homelands. And so when your lifeway is built on that direct relationship with your environment, any disruptions in nature's balance will directly affect you compared to most people in the, again, so-called developed world whose lives are so disconnected from nature that we just don't feel the impacts of climate change on a day-to-day basis. We can't observe how it's impacting our food this season, how it's impacting our drinking water, our environments. So we don't, we just don't feel that strain of the ecological disruption as closely. Absolutely. That's, that's the answer because the indigenous peoples live on the land they feel the impacts firsthand it's the drought typhoons cyclones it's the receding ice it's the loss of water it's the hail that never has never showed up before it's the snow and the changing weather patterns that people have never experienced before i'm from siberia i mentioned that and i know that climate change has impacted my communities through weather patterns, it could be minus 40 one day and then it could go down to minus 15 the other day during the winter season. And um, it's just become very unpredictable. And that affects the growing season and affects the animals. So the entire system is just collapsing and it happens. It's happening all over the world. And we just touched on the solutions that indigenous communities may hold for climate change. Today, while tribal peoples, first peoples, native peoples, and indigenous peoples make up about 6.2% of the global population, it's estimated that indigenous territories contain 80% of the Earth's biodiversity. Indigenous lands also hold unquantified megatons of sequestered carbon as 11% of the planet's forests are under their guardianship. As environmental leaders around the world especially leaders from developed nations that hold more political power, as they're looking at ways to address and lead action on climate change, how much do you think we're currently undervaluing the knowledge of earth stewardship that some of our land-based indigenous communities may still hold? And what would that look like when we're able to help amplify them and really adopt these practices? You rightfully mentioned we are, the new statistic uh, statistics has just come out. We are at 6.2% of the entire population. It's a little over 420 million people around the world. But I just wanted to throw another set of statistics. Indigenous people's lands span 24% of the planet's surface, and these lands are home to 80% of the remaining biological diversity. Mm. Think about that. More than one third of the remaining pristine forests known as intact forest landscapes exist within lands that's either managed or owned by indigenous peoples. 
And the growing body of research shows that protecting indigenous people's land is essential to meeting local and global conservation goals. And as indigenous peoples, we have lived in these reciprocal relationships with the land and with the environment for millennia. And because of this reciprocity, we have been able to retain this biological diversity. And I think that we have to be more vocal and be on the front line of we have to be present in the discussions um, about climate change and offer our solutions. And to talk about the solutions, I just wanted to mention traditional forest management is the sure way to ensure that we are combating climate change. Forests are some of the most important carbon sinks. And I mentioned where indigenous peoples manage over one third, which is precisely 38% of the world's the planet's surface. So by continuing to manage that, the forests, we're ensuring those carbon sinks work. And these are the tropical forests in the Congo River Basin, the Amazon Basin, the south, uh, some parts of Southeast Asia, such as Indonesia, and then the northern boreal forests in Canada, Alaska, Scandinavia, and Russia, and these vast territories that are managed by indigenous peoples. And through that holistic management and traditional knowledge, indigenous peoples contribute to the fight against climate change. Secondly, and not less importantly, indigenous peoples contribute through traditional agriculture and traditional land use. Both soil and grassland are probably the largest carbon sinks, along with the forest. And indigenous peoples have always treated the soil with a lot of respect and love growing food and uh, taking care of stock in ways that is does not disturb the topsoil, limiting all the carbon and all the nutrients in the soil. So this is the second solution. And there are many other ways that indigenous peoples make contributions, such as uh, prescribed forest fires. This is a technique that has been used for millennia by indigenous uh, peoples to prevent large fires later in the year. Other ways to protect carbon from emissions are raising kelp forests, for example. But many, there are many other ways that indigenous peoples can contribute. We just need to put our solutions front and center. I believe I first learned this concept from Paul Hawkins' book, Blessed and Unrest. But he talked about how this idea of indigenous rights, it really encompasses both social justice and environmental justice, and that we really only created these two things as separate, separate issues because we've become disconnected from nature. I totally agree. I just wanted to point out that the most important right for indigenous peoples are rights to land, territories, and resources. It's the basic, and it, I want to point out that it's our collective rights. Mm. So uh, you you probably heard about the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples, right? Mm -hmm. This is our main global uh, international document for Indigenous Peoples that protects our rights. And there are nine articles, 8, 10, 25, 26, 27, 28, 29, 30, and 32, that has references to Indigenous, to the right of indigenous peoples to land, territories, and resources. And there is a reason behind that. Land is everything to us. Without our land, we're not indigenous peoples. 
we have co-evolved with our landscapes. Our land is our home, our church, our grocery store, our medicine, our knowledge, our school, and many more things. So I don't see any work on conservation or climate change without recognizing the right, the collective right of indigenous peoples to land, territories, and resources. This is how important it is. On a related note, something that cultural survival shares as a commonality among indigenous peoples is that they usually have or had their own language, cultures, and traditions influenced by living relationships with their ancestral homelands, as you just mentioned. Today, indigenous peoples speak some 4,000 languages, but of course we know that language loss has been a struggle as colonialism, forced assimilation, and the displacement of indigenous peoples are threatening your cultural and language diversity. Beyond the inherent rights that indigenous communities should have to practice your own traditions, speak your own languages, and have self-determination on your own ancestral lands, why should other people care about helping to preserve that cultural diversity? And how is that tied to environmental protection? Well, thank you so much. This is an important and multi-layered question. And I want to draw a parallel between biological and cultural diversity. Mm. Um, many people agree that biological diversity is essential, right? Even though as human species, we fail to maintain it. We're losing species, animal species and plant species at an alarming rate. For example, we have, if we have diversity of seeds, Let's say we have over 5,000 types of potatoes. We ensure that there is, we ensure the resiliency of the species, right? And it's especially important in the face of climate change. The diversity of seeds ensures adaptability and survival of the species in general. The same thing is with the human species. Our cultural and linguistic diversity ensures our strength as human species. It ensures our own resiliency, our adaptability, and therefore survival. Differences of experiences, origin stories, differences in the worldview, our colors, different colors of skin, different colors of eyes. It's all beautiful and should be celebrated. And it ensures our survival as human species. I just wanted to mention that on April 15th, during the UN Permanent Forum, we're hosting a languages revitalization event. We're inviting partners who are having projects on language revitalization around the globe. And we're gathering together to share with methodologies and approaches that led to successes, like with from no language, native language speakers to let's say a dozen, a few dozens to hundreds, hundreds of native language speakers. And we wanted to create a special space and a platform for for these people to exchange information. I also wanted to emphasize that language diversity is extremely important in biodiversity protection because those terms, they do exist in native languages. And that knowledge, that traditional knowledge on biodiversity protection exists in the native language, in the native languages. And we will lose the native language, that knowledge will disappear with them. I mean, it only makes sense. All of these different languages evolved over time yes. on these different lands. And 
my only worry with our global environmental leaders trying to come up with very homogenized, singular solutions to fix our issues is that that erases all the diversity that exists in all of these different bioregions. So I personally believe that we need to turn to our indigenous communities that still hold their native language and that local knowledge of how mm -hmm. to best live with their local environments, rather than saying we should all do this to address climate change or we should all do this to protect the environment. Because that knowledge is so different in each each, each place. Yeah, I, I completely agree. I think that we have all suffered from a sort of a silver bullet approach when someone from the West comes and says, yes, we're going to create a, a specially protected area and we will not allow indigenous people stay with it. You know, we create those isolated pieces of land, stripping indigenous peoples off their right to be on their land. But we also forget that as humans, we co-evolved with those landscapes, as I mentioned, and indigenous peoples have always been the, the, some of the best stewards of those landscapes, those environments. The silver bullet approaches don't work because they have to be adapted and they should include the knowledge and approaches of indigenous peoples that are very specific to those lands and territories. Cultural Survival, the nonprofit that you lead, one of your latest initiatives is called the Sacred Feminine. And on the need to restore and preserve this, you say, today we live in a world where the masculine and the feminine are out of balance. This imbalance is manifested in how we relate to each other, how we run our governments, how we raise our children, and how we conduct business, end quote. In what ways have we disrupted this balance of the masculine and the feminine, and what have been some of its consequences? Mm -hmm. Great question. And I just wanted to start with an explanation of what the sacred feminine means. For me, for example, uh, it's everything that has a potential to create, to give birth, everything that holds the seed of creation. In uh, the material world, it's manifested in a tree, for example, in a tree that bears the fruit, in a mother bear that has given birth to cubs, or in women, in our human species. Soil, earth, our planet are the ultimate manifestation of the sacred feminine. As for indigenous peoples, our sacred feminine is manifested in our own women. For example, our grandmothers spent time with their grandchildren, telling them stories throughout the day, mostly before bedtime. And those moments are sacred. Mm -hmm. This is when our sacred feminine is in full force, patiently weaving its way to pass our traditional knowledge and language to the younger generation. Today, we live in a world where the masculine and the feminine are truly out of balance, and it's reflected through political decisions to build power plants, to build pipelines through, through sacred territories, through harassing, attacking, and violating the rights of indigenous women, for example not giving them the, the freedom of expression or violating their rights to free, prior, informed consent. 
it's also a, a, an exemplification of the violation of the sacred feminine. So in the Hopi and Mari um, stories, they say that women will regain their places as original healers and will lead the way forward. And men need to help and protect the space for women so women can fulfill their work. Wow. Yes. <laughs> so so really with this imbalance, mm-hmm. a lot of the men-dominated cultures today, they're getting in the way of women being able to fulfill their duties. And not even just women, as you mentioned, our earth as well. Our mm-hmm. society is making decisions that is harming that which gives us life and that can continue to rebirth new life and regenerate new life. Correct. Correct. How, how is cultural survival going about helping to restore the sacred feminine? And do you see this as an underlying imbalance that, when fixed, can naturally help address some of the other imbalances and injustices in our society today? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. But I also think that um, the imbalance exists not only between females, female and male genders, there is also imbalance within the gender itself. Mm-hmm. Yeah, as indigenous women, we have had struggles to addressing our issues on the global level to the mainstream feminist movement, which has its origin in the struggles for voting justice, for example. But it comes from the middle to upper class white women. So we also have that imbalance, not only between, but also among, I would say, but also within the gender. So we need to overcome all those imbalances, all those multi-layered relationships. And to your question about what cultural survival does, first of all, uh, our staff is, we are 25 people and we're made of 18 women, uh, nine of whom are indigenous and our program amplify the voices of indigenous women and promote indigenous women's leadership. And we are continuing to work and provide a capacity building for indigenous women in many parts of the world. Our training workshops incorporate the principles of Cha Cha Watami, which is an Andean perspective of gender harmony and duality. So before a woman can express herself publicly, she must be first comfortable in expressing herself with confidence in private. So ahead of every workshop, we uh, provide healing practices for women who have experienced uh, violence and trauma. And we offer a safe women-only space for participants to share their stories. And I think that's one. this is going to be one of the things that we can offer as an organization where I'm actively personally working on putting a modality where we can provide healing and decolonizing practices to the communities where we work. I know in Guatemala, for example, there are many women who are suffering from violence and PTSD that need those healing practices to be part of their everyday life. Well. Thank you for all that you do. It's super inspiring and humbling to hear about the work that you're doing. And earlier we touched upon this imbalance within our power structure. Mm -hmm. It sounds like 
the people with the most political and economic power today are the ones who are most disconnected from the lands and the people who hold the least political and economic power today. Our world today pretty much is run by the combination of the two things, but the people with the least power in either of these two things are indigenous women. So Mm -hmm. how do you think we can shift this power structure so that we can actually amplify the people whose voices have been pushed aside the most as Mm -hmm. we move forward? Because obviously we, we have so much to learn from indigenous women who still hold the knowledge of what it means to be able to continually regenerate the earth and live in balance with, again, each of the unique bioregions that we live in. Yes, it's a great question. Again, it's a multi-layered question and there is no silver bullet. As Indigenous women, um, one of the ways for us to gain recognition is through education, educating others about what we bring, what solutions we bring to the world's current issues and problems and challenges. We should not only educate others, but we also should educate ourselves. That's why capacity building is a huge thing and a big part of cultural survival's work. I know that my ancestors would say that nothing can stop a hundred women who are in ceremony and in prayer from achieving their goals. And it's, it, it's true, it's profi- It's very profound, but we need to get these women there, you know. They, we need to get them together to be able to pray and hold themselves in a ceremony together in order to achieve our dreams. And one last question before we go into our final five fire rounds. Whether our listener identifies as Indigenous, First Nations, Native, or otherwise, What can we do personally today to best support Indigenous sovereignty, rights, and self-determination wherever we are in ways that you feel like would be the most meaningful? I think that educating themselves is number one. Again, to me, uh, knowledge is power. Uh, Secondly, I just wanted to briefly mention cultural survival's grant-making arm. It's called Keepers of the Earth Fund. It's a fund that is run by Indigenous peoples and for Indigenous peoples within our organization. So in the past three years, we received over a thousand publications from grassroots organizations, Indigenous rights activists, and uh, we realized that the need is there, you know, and we have been able to fund only 74 projects of the many applications that we have received in 19 countries around the world. And to me, I think it's extremely important to fund indigenous-led initiatives. And unfortunately, less than 1% of all philanthropic dollars goes towards supporting indigenous peoples globally. And I think that the number is even like 0.4%. In order to be able to fund those indigenous solutions, such as traditional forest management and traditional agriculture, we need financial support. We need to bring that funding to the grassroots levels, to the community levels, so they can keep going. So, yeah, I, I guess I'm, on, I'm not only playing to the philanthropic partners, I'm playing to the general public. Support and vote with your dollars for Indigenous solutions. Mm-hmm. They're mining for gold, 
But all I see is still Could it be part of the deal? Cause she's sweet as sugar But wait until it rains She can turn very bitter flame Spitting words in the atmosphere They breathe in monochrome White-collared criminals Will reap just what they sow And now the fields are barren Where do we go? Where do we go? From here From here From here From here What's an uplifting social media account or publication you follow or a book that's been really profound for you? The account I've been following um, is the organizational account on co- uh, cultural survival, both on Twitter and on Facebook, both in Spanish and in English. The latest book that I have been reading is called Braiding Sweetgrass. Mm. It's by an, an incredible author, Robin Wall Kimmerer. What do you tell yourself to stay positive and inspired? Oh, it's a series of things. Uh, I stay. I woke up this morning and I went for a run to greet the day, and there was a beautiful sunrise. It totally made my day. You know, it's mm-hmm. it was so beautiful and inspiring, and it really set myself up for the beautiful day of work and interaction. I think some people make me really enthusiastic about work, especially the team of cultural survival who I interact with daily. My mother is an inspiration to me. She brings a lot of knowledge into my life and I'm learning a lot as I go. I'm in my 40s and I'm, I'm hoping that, to become an ancestor at some point. That's my ultimate goal. What's one thing you're working on right now for your health? Uh, lots of self-care, meditation, deep listening exercises with people, but also deep listening of myself, my own self and my body, what it tells me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What are you working on right now to elevate your positive impact for our world? I'm working to launch the Sacred Feminine program. And finally, what makes you most hopeful for our planet at the moment? So I think the most hope for me is the ability of my organization and the other indigenous-led organizations to amplify. Uh, We have this uh, incredible program called Indigenous Rights Radio Program, and we create radio content for 11 to 50 million indigenous peoples, and most of them live in rural areas. And sometimes it's probably the only source of information for them. I personally get my information from KQD and NPR and from the radio. And these people get uh, their information from the Indigenous Rights Radio. So we create the content. Last year alone, we created 160 programs in both in Spanish and in English. And we are translating this content into Indigenous languages. And that gives me a lot of hope because people will be able to listen and understand this information and to use that information to their benefit. 
Green Dreamer. If you want to learn more and stay updated on Galena's work at Cultural Survival, you can head to www.culturalsurvival.org. And you can also follow them on Twitter at CSORG and on Instagram and Facebook at Cultural Survival. I'll also link to their Spanish accounts in our show notes so you can check that out at greendreamer.com. Galena, thank you so much for joining us today and sharing your wealth of wisdom with us. What final words of wisdom do you have for us as Green Dreamers? I don't consider myself a, a wise one. I, I think I'm just still learning. I'm it's still in my journey. But my wisdom would be to take care of yourselves, to really listen to your body, to your heart. And as people, we tend to live in our heads, but it's important to drop from your head to your heart and lead with your heart. And that's where the miracle happens. They're mining for gold, but all I see is steel so cleverly concealed. Cause all of that glitters isn't always gold. Where's the credit in what they sold? Glide in the silver line in rivers far away. It streams in the youth as they line up by the gates. And now, the fields are barren Where do we go? Where do we go? From here From here From here From here From Could it be part of the deal?